All right, welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. I'm recording here from our new office in Gibraltar. So delighted to have finally made the move here and really enjoying life. Today's guest is a guy called David Reese. He was the Chief Revenue Officer of S3. He is a non-executive director to, and an investor to a host of recruitment businesses and recruitment tech. Uh, one of the most informed gentlemen I've ever had on the podcast. Really excited to bring you this episode. Um, and as ever, it's sponsored by Sourcebreaker, Sourcewell, Bold Identity, and Luxo, all tools and services that we use in our business. But today's episode, we covered a lot of good stuff. So David has had access to working with some of the best people in our industry. We talked about uh, L-tips and scaling your company with making sure that your staff are bought in. We talked about the right profile of people, how S3 managed to inspire a generation, and why is it that there are more entrepreneurs that come from S3 than they do from Page or Walters or Hayes? What was it that they got so right? And we had a general talk about technology, how long we potentially have this good market ahead of us in recruitment. Will that scarcity last? And are you in a position to take full advantage of it? Really enjoyed this one. And I tried to throw a lot of questions at him because I know there's a lot of recruitment founders who probably couldn't afford some of David's time. He invests businesses who, or he, he advises businesses who are like at, 50 to 100 going to 200, those who are going to an event or have had an event and want to get to the next one. We talked a lot about internationalization and how to do that in a way that you keep your culture, but maybe get a bit of local culture in. And what does that mean for the model that you put in place? And I just find the whole thing very informative. Hope you enjoyed it as well. A lot of the questions came to me because we run our own advisory business. Now, it's not at the level of David Reese, but we do help founders earlier stage. My wife, Charlotte, um, goes in and does a lot of tech and operational and TA audits on scalable businesses. So she's able to then give them the report of where they're at. And then she gives them an option to work with her over a period of time to help them fix every little detail. We also have our mastermind program that is for recruitment founders who are early or small who want to modernize and who want to make the most out of things and really want to strategize for on a six-month program on every element of your business. We try and stay away from the basics. So if you don't have recruitment experience, it's probably not the best program for you. You would really need to go and do one of those other basic training recruitment uh, setup courses first that, that'll give you the basics. We really focus on taking people who have brilliant experience and giving them all those business skills and tools and making sure that their business is in the right position over that six-month period so they can grow it. Whatever type of business you want, it's up to you, whether that's a lifestyle business or you want to have a massive business like S3 in the future, or you want something in between that just makes you money and maybe you do the next thing. Anyway, Hope you guys enjoy this one. Big thanks to our sponsors, as I mentioned, to all you guys who asked me questions about how to set up your recruitment business. Hope you enjoy this. And we will have another episode soon. I'm going to do one 
on taxation and all that stuff of where, where you can live in the world to maximize your earnings. Because let's face it, there's no point in being in the most expensive place if you're an independent recruiter. The world is your oyster and there's so many good options out there. That's That one's coming up. Talk soon. All right, welcome to the Recruiter Startup Podcast. I'm joined today by a legend of the industry that nobody knows, David Reese. Everybody, <laughs> how, how are you, David? David, I, I know you. Lots of people inside the industry know you, but I wouldn't say you're somebody who's out there shouting about yourself, and you're not so prolific on social media. So I'm excited to get you on because I know your background. But give us a give us the the quick intro into well your career. Give us a just a quick highlight reel. Well, thank thank you for the um, you know the intro. So happy to be here chatting today. Um, yeah, I did um, work for S three um, for twenty two years. So joined back in nineteen ninety eight and left in twenty twenty. And pretty much worked my way up like probably most people do at S three from trainee and ended up being the chief revenue officer. So the first chief revenue officer that the company ever had, and maybe the last, I don't know. They haven't ever replaced me at the moment. So um, so at the end, I was responsible for pretty much running the entire business globally from San Diego to Sydney, um, you know, um, day to day. Traveled all over, spent four years, I think living in Germany as well, um, running the German business, set up the life sciences business real as well um, back in 2000. And six, so so I've been involved in setting up quite a lot of the, the key drivers of growth of the company, and seen it go on quite, quite a crazy journey over that um, twenty-two years from a smallish, you know, uh, smallish wasn't that small when I joined, but you know, um, recruitment company then floated and then went crazy international, you know. So, um, so uh, we were bantering before uh, we kicked off there, and I didn't want you to give me too much of the good stuff before we hit record. What while it's in my head though, and I'm obsessed with this. Why is it that S3 breeds so many entrepreneurs? I think be, first and foremost is the way that we were trained was to think about it as running your own business and be able to generate business. Um, and, and I think still to the day I left, and I think still now, it puts a great effort into developing amazing sales skills in people. And I think once you've got sales skills, really good sales skills, you really believe you can go out and do anything, right? You know, so, and you can start off and do something. So I think we created a lot of people, really great salespeople who were able to go out and create their own businesses. And I think we probably did some things wrong as well. I think we had, you know, maybe with something like a page group, maybe had a much stronger individual brands. We had about 14 or 15 brands at one time. Yeah. So some of the small, there wasn't a lot of equity in that. So people were really able to generate business without a brand behind them to generate incoming, you know, so... So I think you just create a lot of um, entrepreneurial spirit. The, the mechanisms of how we were paid were quite unique um, as well, which really encouraged people to try and grow businesses and, and uh, make enterprise value out of them as well and understood that. We were probably given a lot of, again, you know, um, I think we were probably weaker on the operational and support side at times, which meant people were probably a bit more rounded and got involved with more things than maybe in other bigger organizations at the time. So I think it developed people a bit more all round than maybe other companies, you know, um, did whatever. So that the volume of 
you know, I, I think I was saying earlier that the amount of companies that have started up, that have started up by S3 people, that I'm phenomenally successful in the industry is almost unique in the industry and almost unique in any industry. It's, it's incredible. My first experience of that brainwashed thing that comes from S3 people was I started at Robert Walters in Western Australia and I was doing all right. And, you know, I was kind of into it. Like it was fine and, and, and all the rest. And we were all into our jobs and making money and doing all of that. And then I meet my mate's fiance at the time who was working for Sully in Perth. She was like, hey, why are you even over there? Like, you need, like, you, like, I can't understand why you would be working for Robert Walters when somebody like you could work for S3. And we, I, I remember just thinking, how did they get you to this point of selling the business to me? And like, we're both at an early stage in our career, but just that passion that she was able to kind of give, I thought that was really interesting. Well, it's some- amazing. It's amazing as well. You know, to think back of it, you know, um, we had an amazing leadership team and a quite an inspiring leadership team. You know, who really created that aspirational. And I can't talk about other organisations if they had that or didn't have that. So you know, it's maybe you know um, a culmination. You know, we were involved. We were probably we always call ourselves that we're probably the first British recruitment company to break America, like the Beatles. Right? So we were doing all these exciting things as well. Breaking Germany, we came. We had a thousand people in Germany. We we're the biggest recruiter in Holland. All these things were happening, which created a lot of belief as well. That you're going out and doing things, you can achieve things. And again, we had an incredible long-term reward scheme. If you stayed and were successful, was industry leading by far. You know, it caused a few challenges as well, right? You know, so you know and. But um, but it really retained a lot. Of, it retained a lot of people as well, you know. So a lot of incredible people for a long period of time as well. So was there something about like the profile of people like that they took? Was there like what is an S three? What was the ideal S three person? Maybe compared to who Walters or Page hired? It's hard to say, it's hard to say, you know, because without going through what what you know um, Walters and, and Page would hire, I think we were looking for probably definitely that core growth era. You know, from you start was you know really people who were really driven, had an amazing attitude, um, were willing to sell, work hard, you know, and you know wanted to grasp an opportunity. You know, we just didn't want uh, we just didn't want to be a graduate machine back then, right? When you know definitely when in the period I started and beyond that, we wanted people who really had huge aspirations to go and achieve things. We called it being an entrepreneur. Right. So we said is we wanted to create people who are entrepreneurs coming up, you know, you know, new markets, new opportunities. We said it very much come from the bottom up, not the top down, you know, and stuff. So we really encouraged that. And we wanted people who really lived that. Well, maybe other organizations didn't want that. I don't know. You know, um, and maybe that's why so many people again went off because we were creating those entrepreneurs, you know, um, and use that language quite a lot. How big would the S3 company be if they had a proper investment fund for starting other recruitment businesses in place back then? I don't know. You don't. You don't know. It's hard, it's hard to say. Um, as you know, some of them, some of the businesses, there's not a lot of barriers to entry, you know, to get going. So um, I think that's changing a bit, definitely because of um, a lot of the um, models and employer of records and you know employed contract models around the world and stuff like that. So it's becoming more on contract, a bit more of a barrier to entry around that. But but yeah, it's it's hard to say. Um, if they'd chosen to take 20% or 50% everyone who left, whatever, and back them, I don't know. 
So uh, I, I could ask you loads of boring questions about leading teams and being the manager of this country and that country, but the, your real interest in role was as chief revenue officer. I, I've never interviewed somebody who's done that. So you're, you're responsible for all the money or all the operations or a combination of both. So technically, sales and marketing, that type of function, but it bleeds, it, it bled into everything because sales operations, et cetera. So, you know, it's, it's very hard when you're not in that role that um, everything doesn't need to almost go through you because you may be signing off, you know, what new products, you know, what, you know, what, what projects are in place to deliver the operational capability, deliver those products, what technology is needed for sales, you know, which is the tech, you know, when you're in a, if you're the chief revenue officer in a company where 85% of the staff are salespeople, wow. do you know what I mean? It's not like a chief revenue officer in a, in a non-recruitment or non-sales company might have 10, 15% of staff. I had 85% of the staff reporting to me. Um, so, you know, it becomes quite a critical role. There's just a couple of nuances, you know, I think um, there was a few things happening in the senior structure that, that required me to go into that role. And then we had a new CEO that wasn't from the industry. So I think it really serves his purpose to have someone who really understood the whole business, how it worked rather than segmenting it. So, um, but yeah, it was really interesting because it would never been in place before and it, it, the world was carved up into, into regions and trying to get some type of um, collaboration in the right way, you know, um, without, you know, giving the freedom to the regions was was, was quite challenging. Really what, challenging. Was it, what was it like being involved in the float of S3 and what level were you at at that stage? So I, I was probably a bit, um, I was a director, but not um, really day-to-day involved with the float. That was done by the board at the time and I wasn't sitting on the, the um, PLC. But I don't think it affected us at all because we knew that was happening for years. It wasn't, you know, it was... I think it originally planned for the late 90s, but the market conditions and all this and stuff. So, so and a lot of the people who were involved, who then moved on, who made money, were, were already not involved day to day anyway. So there was a handful of people who were already migrating out of the business. So, so it fundamentally didn't really have an impact. The only challenge with being uh, um, a floated, uh, you know, organisation is that you are driven by short term results. So we we had to report every quarter. And the market reacts to changes, whereas now I'm on the other side of the fence working with companies, you know, who are privately owned. We can make decisions that say, okay, well, we'll write off profit this year and we're going to grow, you know, we're going to invest in this. Where it's very hard to do that in a PLC. I had to grow headcount, profit, and, you know, and, um, you know, a net fee income every quarter, you know, and they would read into anything with to come produce all this. So it's, it's a lot more, it was just challenging. That's challenging. What was it like coming out into the industry? Like you're leaving Scientology after after 22 years, you're breaking free, like, and you've gone into like this way of working, and you have a certain way of solving problems. All of a sudden, you're you're like, how many? You're you've got what seven, eight advisorships now? Yeah, it's some some it's been the two categories. One, some are where I've invested in technology companies, and I'm and they're in the industry, so I'm helping them a bit as well. And then there's the other roles where I'm a proper maybe board member, you know, of more staffing companies. So there's two quite segmented um, um, things there. So, you know, I knew I'd want to leave for a while. I wanted to change. I don't think I suited a PLC corporate environment, you know, in the direction. That's great. The company kind of direction is going in. But that, that's not for me. I think I, I lost a bit of the, the buzz and the sparkle, you know, from, from the day to day. 
is that the people because they're transitioning as Bit, a bit, bit, bit of all round, you know, you spend a lot too much time in maybe board meetings and, you know, in, in situations or strategy, you know, it's it's, it's just a bit, you know, um, and, I, and I was traveling a lot, you know, um, I probably traveled every single week, right? So every single week I would be going somewhere, right? And that might be a short hop over to Holland to, to Amsterdam, or it might be going to Japan, going to America, you know, so so I, I traveled quite extensively in, in, and and i wanted to break that up a bit as well maybe maybe covid would would have done, would have done that anyway you know so it's very weird coming out first off just i came out during covid i resigned pre-covid and i worked through covid and then i came out um i think i came out straight to a lockdown so it was a very weird situation and and i can say you know hand on my heart i had no plan i just wanted to change wanted a bit of time off so i came out and i probably went back into things quicker than anticipated because i had nothing to do so you can imagine you come out. We the the first six months of COVID, I, I was still in the company. We've never, I've never worked so hard. We were working, you know, we, it was crazy times, like yeah. craziest of ever times ever. And then to come out, then in I came out in like September, October that year, straight into a lockdown. Like you know, um, so from going from working seven to eight, you know, frantic to literally nothing to do. Kids, you know, it was a very surreal experience. Um, I met you at our summer party, and I think that was July. So you were kind of getting back into things and into the swing yeah. by then, right? Yeah. So, so, so I think I, I, I ideally was going to take a bit of time off and travel. It didn't all quite work out in the way you anticipate life never does, you know. Um, so I've got back in a lot quicker. And again, you go back to that conversation you had earlier about the yes, three external community is amazing. So every, I think everything I'm involved in has either come to me or is someone from S3. It's an incredible community. And, and it's, you know, you know this now from, from you know, working with um, Andy, how it supports each other. It's, you know, incredible. You know, I've been so you shocked. absolutely have your own mafia in, yeah. the, in the recruitment yeah. industry, for sure. Yeah. Amazing. And I feel proud, you know, maybe you don't know, that exists as much, you know, when you're inside the the, the Scientology or whatever you want to call it. You know, <laughs> um, you know, but you know, what I mean, you, you don't yeah. maybe realize that as much. You do, and you don't, right? You do, you do. Well, but, but when you go fully into it, you know. One of the things that interests me is that you obviously, like, if if I'm a if I have a fifty man business and I want to get to two hundred, I'm thinking, right, get David on as an advisor. He's got the blueprint, hundred percent. Get him in. And then COVID happens and it needs a new blueprint, right? So it's everything changed or did it change? How, how are you finding how businesses have had to adapt and change because of COVID from how you'd worked before? It's quite interesting, right? Because I think first and foremost, recruitment has got sexy again, right? So I would say 219, recruitment not so sexy. Um, now, definitely last two years, super sexy again, because I think the world's really understood the supply and demand metrics challenges that are out there you know you just can't find the people and you're not going to be able to find the people for the next five ten years society is not set up in most countries to get the right people in the right roles or trained to do it it's you know i'm giving an example of my son in school you know he's you know he's the first year ever to do computer science and he's 60 it's mental how can he be the first year to ever do computer science you have to do the first year of it in his own time in lunch hour Wow. And I'm saying it's like he was doing Latin at the time. And I go, shouldn't the whole school be doing computer science, not Latin? It's like <laughs> so, so, so mucked up. And it's just a small example yeah. of how I see society, you know, it's just not geared up in the right way for the, for the future needs mm. or and definitely STEM, you know, the area that I come from. So, one, I think recruitment got sexier, supply and demand. And what we saw through COVID was 
this acceleration of digitalization, right? So, and we're still only the top 10% of the iceberg, right? In most countries, right? So we saw this super digitalization, whatever, you know, look, SU's example, I led the rollout of, we, we rolled out 3000 laptops, we had 300, went to 3000, then all the technology linked to that, you know, on top of that and on top of that and on top of that, you know, and so- nothing, Then nothing worked. <laughs> <laughs> it worked. I rolled out. It worked. It worked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing. But but I, so I'm I'm seeing this acceleration in technology, you know, and the areas that you know I'm passionate about involved in were you know life sciences, you know, and technology. And if you were to back two industries over the next twenty years, they're going to just keep going. It's going to be life sciences. You're going to look after your health and happiness, and technology is going to be in everything we do. So I don't think those are going to you know they, they might be little blips on the way, but but. Secondly, I think we thought pre-2019 that the platforms were going to, literally, we're all going to be made redundant and the platform's going to take over the world, right? And then when you really look at that, um, I think SIA did a report two months ago where they stipulate 1% of the spend will be through platforms in the next two or three years, which is still a huge amount. It can be like four or five billion, but in reflection to the size of the industry, it's a small percentage. And the reason behind that is quite simple that the platforms, some of the platforms struggled, some didn't, but struggled through COVID because the humans were faster. And fundamentally, if your products are human, definitely in the, the, the mid-range professional app, whatever, the, the subtlety of skills you need to deal on both sides with that, it's going to take years for technology to replace that. You know, negotiation, needs analysis, you know, um, persuasion, yeah, all the core sales, human skills. Recruitment is such a human industry that I think that bit will be one of the last bits for technology to get get rid of. And that might be another 10, 15, I don't, I don't even know. Um, so all those things, I think everyone's starting to really understand that there's not going to be a platform will do all this in two years' time. But at the same time, what we what I am seeing, um, and this started quite a while ago, is this real adoption of technology to improve the experience. Sure. Um, and But the volume of technology now available is huge. Yeah. I think people have got to got to really navigate through that noise because it's gone exponential in the last four or five years. Yeah. What's available to people to implement in their business? I'm gonna I'm gonna have to do a bit of a plug here. I'm sorry, Dave. My one of the services that we offer is a tech stack audit. So my wife goes in to any size business, usually a scalable business, uh, from twenty to eighty, that needs to know what technology, how to use it, if they're using it, when to buy it. There hasn't been one person that she spoke to that scored over a three out of 10. Yeah, I think people people buy stuff they don't need. They don't integrate it very well, or they don't understand. They don't take a step back and correct the whole journey, the candidate or customer journey, and start from that point. Rather, and it's a bit of a culture of, you can see it in some of these groups, Someone's got something, well, should we all get it now? And then they never test an ROI on it and see, well, did it actually do anything? Or we're just spending whatever, you know, some license. People like me pushing it. But I think there are some amazing things out there. And, you know, and, and trying to push probably the industry a bit more from being, I think the industry is quite sales-led, elbow-led, right? To more marketing-led, demand-led. And maybe some, you know, and if, if a company's got, some of the companies I'm working with now, I've got really good propositions, yeah. which means it's then very easy to generate marketing-led demand, yeah. um, which incoming, which really makes the brand much more sticky, and people want to work there as well. So, well, I think when people think of headhunters, they think of like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross type, like people just hammering the phone and cold calling, and 
really a lot of that will be replaced by top of the funnel marketing. You're then in community-based marketing in a niche, and then you're trying to add value through your conversations and your relationships and constantly developing that. That's where I see everything going. There'll still be human, there'll be expert, there'll be persuasion. But I think maybe to your point earlier, when you're saying like the industry's got sexier, it's because we're not as desperate as we were before. Yeah, and I think what you are there, right, is that's why, you know, if for, for recruitment companies, being a generalist doesn't work, right? So, you know, you, you really need a clear proposition because if you're going to operate in that way and generate value marketing, if you're going to operate in communities, you've got to have some clear proposition. Yeah. Just some random generalist, you know, um, I think it's going to be harder for people to do that. You know, so, you know, obviously the bigger companies are by, by nature, they're going to be more generalist. But if you're, if you're 30 to 40 plus the two, 300, you've got to have a clear proposition or what are you doing? You know, um, you, know you, you know, why are people going to work with you and why are clients going to work with you and candidates going to work with you? You know what I mean? What's the most exciting piece of tech you've come across? You, you can plug one of yours if you like. <laughs> Do you know what? Do you know what? You know, and I am going to plug something, right? You know, because, you know, I chair a company called Selligence, which is, you know, just on its on its journey at the moment, right? And I'm, I'm flying on it. I've got quite hyper growth. But what they're trying to do is to run AI over data and information to really get predictive decisioning from customers of when they're going to hire, when they're going to make. It's not just replicable to, to this industry, but it's, but it's really exciting. And, you know, and the technology just gets better and better with time by the nature of what it's doing. And I think that could really have a, it's probably the only thing of its type in pre-sales enablement predictive. And I think over the next couple of years, I think that's really going to fly. Um, and it's starting to fly in the US, but it's a really good piece of, I think what people are looking at, because it's more about demand, people seem to be more focusing on sourcing at the moment. But my, my you know, what we've got to make sure people are still building up, regardless if it is about sourcing in the medium term, because demand is so high, you've really got to be nurturing your customers as well for the future when when that demand might slow down, which will happen at some point. A lot of people talking about crack in America at the moment. You've uh, You've seen that journey happen. What advice, if you were to give a few pieces of advice to founders that are thinking about doing that, maybe they're going for a bit now and they're at a size where they think they can take it on? Well, probably for one, 101 advice, you know, so, so I would 100% do it. I think if you've got a quality business, I think the, the, the British have shown they're great at being able to export to the UK, sorry, to the US in recruitment. I think that's been proven now. We're long past the point of proven, right? You know, um, scaling is a different question, right? You no, know, but but actually getting out there. There's some obvious things we always say don't do, like don't go to New York or California, right? You know, but everyone does. So you can say that to anyone and they still end up going there, right? Um, just because of the whole model of cost and everything like that. But everyone everyone ends up in San Fran or something like that or LA and, and New York, or whatever. But but we always tell people not to do that because it's just expensive, challenging to retain and, you know, get people in those um, areas. I think, you know, getting the right leadership in place to go some, you know, you know, we are always quite keen to make sure definitely our initial elements for the companies we're involved with is someone you know well, because it is a big step. So someone, you you know, you know and can trust and go and start that business. But also, and this might sound counterintuitive to that statement, it is a different country. And I think a lot of the, you know, we had some challenges where we were perceived maybe as a, a British company and trying to Ameri- make it from day one, understanding that it is an American, going to be an American business. 
and building it with an eye that this is really going to be not a British business in America, but it's going to have a view of becoming a proper American business, if that makes sense. You You're know, talking so. about American leadership. In, in well, future, I think you, even if you start off, you know, like if you you know move someone there or high, you know, it's quite common for British companies to move someone there, and the logic of that is great because you've got someone in whatever several times zones where you trust, knows your model, knows your proposition. Your yeah, and then then over time, by making sure you you've got an eye to build that as an American business, not then just to front load it with more and more Brits, and suddenly you know um, if that makes sense. So, uh, but I think I think you know I think it's a great market. It's, you know, um, it's an expensive market to operate in, um, you know, quite quite a lot more expensive than the UK in operating costs. There's a few challenges, there's quite a few challenges around the, the contract or W2 model in America, which just make it a bit more challenging as well. Employer record, there's a lot of risk. Obviously, there's a lot of companies who can support on that. But I definitely think it's a great opportunity for people to go over there, 100%. So remote working's become a thing in recruitment. Um, I, I, a lot of companies are pumping the you know, two, two in the office, three remote. But I think, I think like the remote thing is going to happen eventually, just like it does in SaaS sales. How far are we off being able to train rookies in remote? It's a very good question, right? Because if if you're taking on, you know, if you're taking a lot of rookies, right, and they learn by, they learn by osmosis, sure. right? So, you know, you would say maybe, I don't know, you know, 10% of the learning is done in the classroom, whatever, and 90% is done interacting with people that, that are, you know, and learning and listening, you know. And so obviously there is technology that can do this, there are tools that can do this, but currently that's quite time consumptive to do that. So I think the, the there needs to be some evolution of technology or systems, I don't even, you know, that, that allows that to happen in order for for people within the first six to 12 months to because at the moment i think it would be detrimental to their learning experience if they were completely remote for that first 12 months they wouldn't pick up the skills obviously and you know an experienced up and running consultant technically it doesn't matter where they work right you know so what 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 is important is what is the company giving them in value at that point as a culture. And I think the industry needs to think how it's creating culture when maybe it has 40, 50% of its staff not, you know, um, you know, or completely remote. Do you know what I mean? You know, there's a lot of thought to go go in that. And the other thing, the other thing, you know, um, there is a difference between SaaS sales currently and, and recruitment or staffing. Um, you know, that SaaS has a lot more demand-led, you know, has a lot more, you know, lead generation they probably do less in a way you know if you're if you're if you're junior sdrs right in a in a in a, in a SaaS company you wouldn't probably have them all working from home you probably would have the sdrs in an office and um, the company i'm working with when we've got sdrs in, in tampa right and we wouldn't we wouldn't let them work from home in their first year because it's no difference to recruitment they're learning the job they're learning how to sell whatever and overall sales is a, it's a motivational job right so so you know sometimes it's great to be with people who motivate you when you've had a really bad day or no one's picked up a call to you, you know, everything's gone wrong. It's not a transactional job, you know, so motivation is absolutely key. And it's definitely harder to motivate people over, it just is, isn't it, you know? Yeah, sure is. Let me jump into another question. I get asked a lot about L-tips and you mentioned the best way, like you mentioned S3 managed to get that right. 
in terms of oh, well, a lot of we retained a lot of people. We retained a lot of people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, a lot yeah, of people yeah. stuck along for that journey. A lot yes. of people got money out of that vehicle, yeah. um, and a lot of people left the business, set up their own, and created their own vehicles. What advice do you have for anybody who's thinking long-term staff retention? And in terms of selling that vision and using LTIPS as a vehicle for that. So I think there's lots of good, you know, it's different. For, I'm, I'm advising a lot of companies on this at the moment. And it's very, it's different per company, right? You know, so I would always recommend probably that um, someone did some, some type of LTIPS scheme over giving equity. Because, you know, you never know when equity is going to happen, right? You know, and, and when a, an event's going to happen for an organization. So, so having maybe a bit of a, a, a long-term incentive plan rather than equity makes a lot more sense because then people can realize it and see an end to it rather than it's, it's manana, 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 whatever. But you've got to do what's right for you. And it's, there's lots of good companies, again, who advise. You so know, sorry, on- just, just on that, what you mean there is as soon as we get to a certain amount of revenue, yes. some of it's released? Yes. Yeah. So, you know, so so whatever period of time, you know, if we get to 3 million EBIT, this much gets shared back in LTIPS to people, whatever, you know, on that. Nice. Rather than saying is, oh, you've got an equity percentage which gets realised at an event. Because no everyone says they can control the event, right? But we go into recession next year, then I'm sure everyone is planning to do an event next year. Maybe won't then for another three years. Right. I said S3 wanted to float, I think, originally in 1999. Yeah. I floated five or six years later, right? So, so you can't control bigger the events in the same way that you can control an LTIP. So, you know, um, that would be my personal. But, but what the biggest thing I see, the problem is people giving away equity too much too soon to people, or making decisions, bringing in people that maybe aren't the person who's going to take them all the way to the next point, but very early needed them, give them a big chunk of equity and then can't go back on it. Wow. Should, should be groceries, right? Groceries, yeah. Groceries are great, I think, you know, or... You know, um, you know, phantom shares when you've got a shareholding, maybe what you've built, what, what enterprise value you get for that, mm-hmm. you know, if something happens. But giving absolute equity in Topco, I've seen a lot of people just get themselves in a right knot over that, you know, because then, you know, it's not shaped right for the for the future. Um, it's quite common. It's quite common. Last couple of questions on the future. Where, where do you see it in our in our industry going? Um, obviously, I've. I've interviewed so many people. Some people have crazy views that we're going to get replaced. How many good years? Give me, give me, actually, give me the next 10 years. So, you know, I'm quite knee deep into technology now. <clears throat> and, um, you know, I can't see technology in the next, you know, five to 10 years replacing at the medium to high end level all these subtleties we, we talked about. Um, but I can see a huge Police in technology, you know, um, um, removing a lot of the really, really helping to improve the experience for candidates and clients and and automate a lot of things. But like core sales, right? You know, because when you're talking about if that goes, it goes to everyone in every industry, right? We're talking about sales, right? You know, you're talking about the removal and and recruitment's most, it's the only industry where we're doing two things quite unique in recruitment. One, our product is a human being, right? So that's, that's quite unique. And also, we're asking people to do B2B and B2C at the same time. Definitely in the 360 model. Maybe not if we've got 180 model, 360. Sell to a client, quite senior maybe one day, and then go and find you know, a candidate next day and talk. You know. So these are unique things, right? So you know, there's a lot of other industries that don't have those unique things. And maybe you know, um, technology could replace sales skills quicker. I, I don't know. So I, I don't see that. I don't see that in the next five to 10 years. I really don't see that. 
And also, I think, you know, we're going to have this such a issue. If you look at a lot of countries, like the Germany is a great example. It's got such a, um, a demographic time bomb continuing to happen that, you know, they're just not going to be able to fill the jobs. It's just going to be a nightmare of the ability to, you know, you know, get people into jobs, whatever. So you've also got this challenge now with um, COVID, um, Brexit, and, and technically the war in Ukraine, where everyone wants to reclaim the supply chain, right? So everyone's had a nightmare with supply chain. So a couple of years ago, it didn't matter where your stuff was coming from. It all sort of worked, right? Now it's been all on. We can't have this again, you know, where we can't control our supply chain anymore. So I think there's a lot of moving parts here that will mean that demand for these skilled people will remain at quite a high level. There might be little dips due to, you know, some recessional elements, whatever. But I think the industry will be very robust for the next 10 years. I if really, you- really do. All right, a couple more. I'm getting the good stuff now. So stuff that always comes up. 360 or 180, where, where, where do you stand on it in terms of... And, you know, there's no right or wrong on this, right? It's a philosophical point, right? It depends. You know, I've got one company I work with, which is pretty much all 180, because they go after large corporate com- companies. They have a very clear, you know, strategy of what companies they want to operate with. And their model is about large delivery to, you know, corp- you know large corporates. Another organization might be selling something very niche into something where only that company has one or two. So 360 would be probably the only mechanism that would work mm. with that type of model. So I think you've got to really understand the, the customer and candidate dynamics of your market. Now, we had a lot of 180, you know, and America's quite a 180 model. And we had some large resource centers, you know, as well. And we, <clears throat> we had volume obviously repeatable the same roles. You know, 180 is a really good model, large organizations, MSP. You know, with a lot of delivery, um, 180 delivery on MSP. But in a lot of the core niche tech and life sciences, you know, we struggle to get away from 360 because it requires a really, New really, approach. really knows that market really well. Might only place two yeah. in it, that company, and then it's another company, you know. So, so, uh, so I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going. Not, I'm not saying you know. What, what, and then we'll, uh, split desks. Founders always say, oh, Thinking, going to get them doing temp, a bit of temp and perm, because... Never do it. All right, brilliant. Shit, next. shit, shit. <laughs> never next do it. Like, next can't, can't, you never get... Never. We tried it so many times. Absolutely yeah. shit, shit. Yeah, great. Okay. Um, we're clear on that one. Yeah, we're clear on that one. That's the first sell one product. Yeah. Sell one product. Sell one product well. Don't sell... It fries people's brains. Or yeah. firm consultants just, you know... People just find perm jobs, never find a contract job. You know, they won't do it. It's, it's, it's a shit show. Uh, small founder starting out, says, I want to do this niche. Role comes in. It's outside the niche. Thinks he thinks it's fillable. What do you think? So um, I, what I'm going to say now is going to be, I'm going to have a contradict to myself in the space of one, one 360, okay. right? So I think reality is when you start your own business, the first six months, you've got to do what you've got to do a bit, right? So, you know, sometimes you've got to fund something. You've got to get some flow. So I, I don't think there's a single business I've involved with where we haven't gone outside of the proposition in the first six to 12 months, right? But, you know, you want to be building, you know, when you're bringing people in, they should be tied to proposition going forward. So, you know, I would say, yes, no, first, not the sixth, maybe 12 months, if you, you know, but after that, you should be, you, you've got to have a proposition to stick to it or there's no value creation, I think. Right. I've bled you enough. I've, I've taken, I've got it all out of you. I'm happy. Thank you so much, David. Great having you on. No worries. Thank you for your time. Appreciate it.